Well, that's the story. As best I'm understanding it at this moment in my journey. And I kind of titled this last section, Let the Journey Continue. Because what I want to talk about, we're going to have some question and answer in a moment from those that are here about what it is that would help fill in some gaps for you still. But I really want us to know that the academic understanding of Scripture, or even putting it in a story like I have and being able to see this, what I've called revelational flow, that it's not just a rule book of everything's just nailed down in every chapter, everything we needed to know, that God was wooing us into himself over thousands of years of human history so that he could finally culminate that in the sun coming. And then in the 2,000 years past that, we're still coming into the fullness of the work that Jesus accomplished for us. I don't think we're discovering new stuff, like there's a new, uh, a new New Testament going to be written someday. I think we haven't lived out yet the realities of the New Testament we already have. I think we put those into religious constructs for most of our history, have found them wanting. I think there have been groups of people in every generation since this gospel began in the planet who've come to learn to live in by believing what they hear and learning to live inside the love of an Abba and being transformed by that love. I think we've always had those people. But as, a, as the first line of Braveheart, the movie says, history is written by men who hang heroes. And what it makes the point of is that the, the prevailing climate, even in our religious institutions, it's the powers that be that own the seminaries and the monasteries that got to determine what literature got preserved and what church history we saw as noble and what did we see as innoble. I was in a cathedral in Albi, France a number of years ago. This, this cathedral is huge. It's 100 yards long. It's 100 yards, tall, or it's 100 yards wide, 100 yards tall, 300 yards long. And underneath that cathedral is a dungeon 100 yards wide, 300 yards long. That, that cathedral we built, we don't know for any other reason than this, but the Albi Jensen's, the only thing we know about them because everything they believed and everything they'd written was burned and destroyed. Little village in the south of France and somebody came up with the idea that we do not have to follow the Pope to follow Christ. And Rome says, we can't let that thought thrive. They build this cathedral over a hundred or more years. I forget how long it took to build the cathedral. Why they're building the cathedral, they're killing Albi Jensen's people from Albi who would not renounce their faith. I stood at an altar where people, after it had been completed, people were held in the dungeon, beaten until they were ready to repent. They brought them into this altar, up to the altar, and behind the altar is seven panels of how the seven deadly sins are punished in hell. It's, and it's 17 feet high. And above that, for the rest of the top to the top, is Jesus sitting on the judgment seat of Christ and the sheep and the goats and all that language. And they would bring them here to say, renounce your belief and swear allegiance to the Pope. And if they didn't do it, they'd drug them back to punish them some more. I stood at that altar back in 1200 AD. 60,000 Albi Jensen's were killed in that facility because they wouldn't swear their allegiance. We've gotten this mixed up a lot, I think, over the course of human history. In my own life, I've, I've told you about my pharisectomy and all the things God's gotten to change in me. I grew up very religious. I grew up with a real commitment to it, thinking that's how, I grew up with a passion to know God and I thought you know God through religion. And so I worked it as hard as anybody works it. I, I read the Bible more than anyone I knew, pray more than anyone I knew, worked hard, was a pastor, doing all the stuff I knew to do. Inside, it wasn't creating that sense of fullness that I thought Jesus was talking about. I'll be in you and that your life will be to the full. And 
that fullness of joy. And I, I'd have moments, and then I would I'd have moments of God just visiting me in my loneliness and just crying out to Him. And then I would say, oh, well, then I just need to work even harder. And, and I would exhaust myself again. I need another kind of renewal. And it wasn't until 16, 17 years ago when that all collapsed for me in a wonderful way. And I realized I was outside of the structures I thought were essential to faith and began to discover a different story, a different story about the cross of God not punishing sin to satisfy his wrath, but God curing sin in his son. His son was the host in which wrath could meet sin and wrath win so the redemption could be ours. That story changed everything. Father's now no longer the bad guy in the story. He's the endearing character in the story. What changed the most for me about hearing this different story of the cross was Father was someone I could know, wanted to know. I could be as safe in his lap as my young granddaughters are on mine. And I'm not one of those stupid grandparents that think his grandchildren are perfect. Mine are far from perfect. They can be obnoxious little brats sometimes. But I love those little girls, and I've got a young grandson, but he's still a bit of a protoplasmic blob. When he gets more exciting in a couple of months, we'll talk more about him. But right now, he's just, you know, he's a factory for things. And uh, although he is smiling now, so we've, we've got some wonderful redemptive movement going on in little Austin's life. I've got some wonderful pictures Julie's taken of me sitting with Amy on my lap or Lindsay on my lap. And when I see those, that's how I image God. That, to me, is the Abba. It's not a teenager negotiating with a parent. It is, the Abba Father is what the youngest child calls his dad. My relationship with God, the transformation in my relationship, my passion to be part of what he's doing in the world, all that derives from an Abba Father. It does. It derives from this Father can love me at my most broken, which doesn't say, so I'm just going to keep being broken. He can love me in this. It makes me detest my brokenness. It makes me want to... God, I want you to fix this. I want to be different. I want to love like you love. The way you love is just so fun. And then when I actually love somebody like that, and most of the times I do, it's just an accident. I really didn't realize I was because I wasn't trying to. I just treated somebody differently than I normally do and watched the fruit of that happen. And all of a sudden, oh, man, I'm one to that. That's better than any religious drug I've ever been on. The reality of living loved by the Father and being a lover in the world, not even just of fellow believers, but also of people who don't know him, the harassed and helpless. Like, not enemies, not you pagan, wretched sinners ruining our culture for us, but lost children, stray dogs in that analogy. And stray dogs is not a pejorative in our family. There's nothing that strikes Sarah's heart more tender than a stray dog. He doesn't have a home and is scared to be cared for and needs a home. And we've taken many strays in where we used to live on the edge of town. There were many dropped off there, many abused dogs. Sarah would love them into wholeness. And then you try and adopt a dog from Sarah. Sarah's going to read you in about two minutes. So you're just looking at that dog or whatever. And she's going to walk over to me and say, no, they can't have it. They can't have that dog. I'm like, okay. So we'll say, and they say, hey, we have the, no, you know what? I we'll think we're, we've got some other people who are interested. We'll call you. We'll move on because you've got to pass the Sarah test. Sarah wants that dog not tolerated, not just have a place in the backyard. Sarah wants that dog to have a family and a home and lots of loving. So when I talk about seeing people like stray dogs, that's not a pejorative. That's to me just evokes the tenderest. That's, that's where lost people are and we forget that. Heard a great story from a gal who found he loves me and it was part of a transition in her life. She wrote me a fairly lengthy story, had been 
involved with a drug dealer while she was still in high school, had gotten pregnant and ended up in the, to make a long story short, in the stripping world and then in the pornography industry and one of the top, I guess, valued people to have in pornographic movies worldwide. And she finally had to beg her way out of that because she just didn't want to be involved in it anymore. Ended up being one of the top strippers touring clubs around the States. And she was in a club. And there were three gals sitting at a table, which she thought was very strange, that three young gals would be sitting in a strip club. And when she went back after one of her performances, one of the wait staff brought her a red rose. She said, what's this? She said, it's from, you, see the, you know the table with the three girls at it? And she said, yeah, they sent this rose to you. She said, well, that's strange. And there's a little note on the rose. And it just, a card on the inside just said, we love you. And if you ever need help getting out of this lifestyle, here's a phone number. And it wasn't a ministry to hookers or strippers. It was three girls who cared enough to go there that night and offer this to her. She ended up calling him. She ended up getting out of the lifestyle. Read He Loves Me and the way God healed her. When I heard her story, it changed the way I view people. Because I view people, I don't view people the way Jesus does in the world, harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. I look at those wicked, sinful people destroying the world I want to live in. Jesus had a different view. God has a different view. And it doesn't matter what's hurt us or what's stained us. The whole story of this redemption, I'm going to go back to this slide right here, just because this is the one that we've been talking through, this whole story of redemption, the dates, the, all the books of the Bible that we've talked about. This is the story God's given to help plant that in our heart. And what I mean by let the journey continue is this gets to go on. This gets to go on to days for come, and there's all the stuff. I, I mentioned some of this before, but didn't refer to it quite yet. I want to talk briefly about the apocryphal literature. This is that, these are non-biblical writings. They're in the Catholic Bible, which made us distrust them as being good Baptists growing up, so we'd never read these things. They're not inspired in the same way, but this is history written from, that inter from Nehemiah to Matthew, and this is where some of the things happen in Israel. Some of this is prophetic, some of it is, is teaching, some of it's just legend. That's what it means by legendary. Some of it's uh, romantic novels. I just want you to be aware of it so you know what it is when you see it in some editions of the Bible. These have never been accepted as the canon. This is part of the Old Testament. They're not inspired in the same way. They don't carry the same weight. But there is some interesting history here. But I hope from this study and people who listen to it that there's a journey that begins here, not a journey that ends. Oh, great. I understand the Bible now. I hope this has whetted your appetite to say, I really want to go back. And I really do want to get the Jesus of the Gospels. I really do want to get into those letters again and not just the things I've been taught that they meant. The, you know, the, from Psalms, your word of my hid in my heart that I'm not sentiment being. That's about scripture memorization. No, it's not. It's about something so much bigger than that. And read with fresh eyes. I even say when you read the gospel, read it like you read in a magazine or a newspaper. Don't read it like, I've got a holy book on my lap and now I must go into some weird thing. No, it's just a book that God's made available to us to unpack all that he is so that we'll know him and his ways. But if you read it less like a theological text and more like a story and get engaged with the story, the insights you'll have will be incredible. The letters the same way. These are real letters written to real people in real situations. And there's stuff that applies to where you get stuck and get lost on this journey today and those things. And then going back to the old covenant. Sorry, I'm off my thing. Then going through the prophets and the old covenant and working our way through that reality. 
It helps to understand this was the plan of redemption that God had from the beginning. We don't read the Old Testament with God going, oh my goodness, plan A didn't work. Oh, try, oh plan B is not working. I got to come up with plan C. It's not a frantic God who doesn't get it. The story Jesus told us in the prodigal is getting lost and being one again. And the whole purpose that I hope is that we can learn to live in this space. As I said to you the other day, God loves you when you're out here. I've got stuff in my life I'm not living fully loved and I'm not living in the fullness of God's truth. But I know there's a playground. And when I'm in that playground, when I'm in that space, of, that's where life is full. That's where life makes sense. That's where even in the worst moment, my heart's at peace. And when I'm not, I've got anxiety and going, this is just the book that helps us with the relationship that draws us increasingly into this playground where we get to know and embrace the life that God wants to give us.